Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Daniel Katzer with us with BNP Paribas, a wonderful French bank. He's had a foreign exchange strategy, North America. Dan, what will you listen for as we all listen to the Lagarde press conference on fiscal matters? She has to address that Europe is not a great fiscal power, is it? No, I agree with you. I think there will be a discussion of um, fiscal issues in the press conference and some uh, jawboning towards directed at the um, at the finance ministers and the, and the heads of government to to move in that direction. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, just as uh, Powell yesterday uh, said, um, a lot of this is outside of their remit, and um, all they can do is kind of nudge gently in the right direction. Dan, help our audience here. Just how large is ECB asset purchases right now? They've got all these different programs. Put them together. Just how big is monthly QE at the European Central Bank at the moment? Uh, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it's not that different from uh, the Fed story where you have a range of programs. Uh, you have the QE programs, which are more traditional and, in fact, uh, larger on the ECB side uh, than, than, uh, than what the Fed is doing. But then you also have all this alphabet soup that you kind of referred to of, of credit easing measures. And, you know, these, there's so many programs because there's so many different things that uh, the Fed and the ECB are trying to, to fix. But the bottom line is they're trying to make sure that uh, markets are functioning smoothly, uh, that there's no pockets of uh, illiquidity uh, and that they're kind of getting their uh, transmission into all the right places. There's another loan program for banks, which I'm sure is going to be a topic for the news conference a little bit later this morning. The canary yeah. in most people's coal mines right now is a BTP, the Italian bond, yeah. the 10-year right now, up seven basis points off the back of this decision. Is the focus still on whether the ECB will buy junk debt from here on out, not just on the sovereign side, but on the credit side too, Dan? I think there was also some hope that they might do more to address some of the pressure on the very front end of the market that you know you've seen in, in uh, at least for part of uh, April higher higher Euribor fixings, uh, and um, some hope they might a- add uh, com- uh, financial commercial paper or or T bills to their their um, their purchase programs. Instead, what they've done is added these these additional uh, uh, TLTROs that you mentioned. So that may be coming up a bit short of what the market was hoping for, and that may be why uh, you see some of the pressure on, on the euro uh, right after the decision and, and also on, on the BTPs. Dan, I remember when currencies used to be a, a debate on which central bank was either tightening fastest or easing fastest. So I'm wondering if it still is a relative game in terms of who's easing most quickly, who's got the most ammunition to do so, who's winning here? Where is the pressure right now on a weaker dollar or a weaker, weaker euro? Well, I think we're kind of like where we got to in 2009 already. We got here very quickly where everybody is, is all in, everybody's at zero, and now they're just making adjustments along the, the margins to make sure that the transmission's working. So everyone's all in. Uh, rate differentials have come down to uh, about zero. It's about you know, 70, 60, 70 basis points, three-month rate differential uh, between Europe and U.S. based on the FX forwards. And that means that you know, the currencies that are going to do well are the ones where uh, invest, you have a current account surplus. Investors have no more reason to keep uh, risk in overseas markets. And uh, you'll see hedging away uh, of overseas effect right. exposure. So that's bad news for the dollar, basically. I don't want to get you in trouble with Paris, Dan, but let's try. What's the optimal point for euro right now? What's the most efficacious euro dollar pricing right now for Christine Lagarde? 
Uh, well, we think euro is cheap uh, versus the dollar. Uh, we think a long-term equilibrium is in the 130s area. So, wow. uh, obviously, <laughs> that's a long way away, and, and that, you know, it's not gonna, that's not going to happen very quickly. Uh, but we think uh, you could get considerably higher from where you are now, and um, that would be a much more uh, neutral uh, place for, wow. for FX. Dan Katsif, great to catch up with you. Joining us from BNP Paribas. at the surveillance home studio in the oak-paneled library where the Bloody Mary poured, I can look (laughs) at a book, The Wage Curve, Blanche Flower Oswald, and I can open the book and see the first sentence. Work on this monograph began in 1987. David Blanche Flower joins us now from Dartmouth where he sold 12 copies of The Wage Curve. David, is this the worst you've seen since 1987? Is this is this is stunning economic decline, isn't it? Well, it certainly is the worst since 1987. But I'm a historian as well, and I I can't see anything worse than this ever. Um, I mean, I was looking at the numbers you were talking about this morning. We've got numbers for Europe, we've got numbers for France, but also Spain and Belgium and Austria, and we're looking at I mean unprecedented numbers. And just to put what John said in context, France, of course, had a negative quarter the one before that. So basically, yeah, interesting. You know, certainly now, even before we get to Q2, I mean, these numbers are completely unprecedented, and they're all going to get a lot worse. Are we going to see another number at 8.30? My guess is 4 million or so UI claims. It's a bit difficult to follow because if you look at a place like Texas, there's been a big increase there. But these are, these are numbers that are, you know, the, the only way to describe it is a falling night. This is just collapsing through the floor. Danny, for 10 years, you said don't raise interest rates. You kept saying don't raise interest rates because this labor market has still got a load of slack. There's still a load of work to do. There's still more and more people that need to come back. They raised interest rates. Chair Yellen flirted with the idea of running things hot. She didn't run things hot. Chair Powell quickly realized after a couple of years on the job that maybe they should be leaving things to run hot because there is more work to do in the labor market. Danny, when we come out of this in 12 months time, 18 months time, whenever that is in two years time, the reluctance to do what they did last time around is going to be absolutely massive. Can you help frame for our audience just how long rates are going to be at these levels because of the lessons that were learned over the last five, 10 years? What a great question. I mean, obviously on your program many times, I took the view that the Fed was mistaken in its rate rises from 2015 to 2018 and left the economy weaker than it should have been when this shock came along. Um, I I think we need to look back at what happened both from 2008 onwards, and it seemed to me that people underestimated the scale of the shock the fiscal authorities tightened too much, and that put pressure on the central bank. And I think we haven't learned the lesson. I used to quote this, this quote a lot. Keynes in 1931 talked about the long-dragging conditions of semi-slump, and he said the issue was not so much the crash itself, but what followed. And so I think that's a really great question of yours, John, that, that the reality is that you have this great shock, and then you need to worry about what's coming. And I think if we look back, the the biggest mistake that was made was to assume it was yeah. all over. Um, and then you could sort of anchor back. And then if you hear now, the Austerians are all talking about, well, now we, in 18 months or so, we're going to go back to where we were. We can raise rates. We can tighten up. And I think the reality yeah. is that 
what we know in these giant shocks is that they're long-lasting. Lisa, how come John Farrell only has all great questions? What is that about? Danny yeah. and I talk before we do the show. Okay. <laughs> you coordinate uh, and you bribe him. That's a great uh, question. <laughs> I, I agree, and I want to build on it, uh, Danny. And I, the idea of the slack in the economy and in the jobs market, and you wrote a really good paper about this recently, looking at the preliminary data about the job destruction and the mass of it uh, in the United States and in the United Kingdom in the wake of the coronavirus shutdowns. And you talked about the widening wealth gap, the widening income gap, the disproportionate hit on lower income individuals. Is the Fed effectively widening this wealth gap with its programs? Well, I mean, the, the issue is who, who are you going to rescue? I mean, we had an, an, an initial piece of data from the BLS for, for its March release, and we're going to get the, the release for, for April coming shortly. If you look, the biggest group that were impacted were the young. So the young had a 3.3 percentage point rise in their unemployment rate. So obviously the issue here is that there's going to be distributional consequences here. And obviously the Fed action we know in 2008 onwards rescued people who owned assets. And what we're going to see here is that that's the same thing going to happen. The question is, what happens in terms of the distributional consequences? And of course, what we're seeing are distributional consequences of the virus itself. So people in who poorer people, people without health insurance, people who are not so well. So that, that's obviously an issue. And the question always for a central bank is, OK, we're going to have an effect on distribution. We only have limited tools. It's up to the fiscal authorities to do something about it. And obviously the issue is, are they going to do that? And I think the second issue is, as we see around the country, are they going to get food to the people who need it? So I think distributional things are really important. And something else I should flag is that we're going to look at UI claims, but the big deal going forward is going to be underemployment, which is even if people are in work, they don't have enough hours, and that sort of huge hit as well, and we're going to see big hits from that. So it's not just unemployment, it's about yeah. underemployment, and the people who are going to be underemployed are the weakest folks that you're right, the Fed will not essentially be getting to, because they can't do everything, but the, but the central government and the Congress have to get to those folks, and they aren't. And so what we've seen is, the people who do best in the boom are the people who do worst in the slump. So the least educated, the young, we're going to worry about, and the Fed really has, has no, 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 no part to play in that game. Danny, politicians have done a lot over the last couple of months, and one of the things they've done is enhanced employment benefits in the United States of America. There's a rather controversial question being asked in America now over the last several weeks about the unintended consequences of that decision. Can you walk us through how you're thinking about that particular dilemma at the moment? enhanced unemployment benefits, which for some people, they may well be doing better off without a job, financially speaking, certainly not psychologically speaking, but financially speaking. Well, the, the first thing we know from, from all the work that I and many other people in behavioral economics have done is that the biggest um, happiness inducer, if you like, is a job. And so obviously the question now is, well, should you go in and help people who have lost a job through no fault of their own. And so that's the first point, through no fault of their own. And so you put in benefits, and we've traditionally done it on a bipartisan basis, to help people through this shock. The issue, I guess, is so you've helped these people, and then you say, well, are they just lazy? Are they going to just sit there and not look for all the jobs that are out there? And then you get to the point of going, well, what jobs are there out there? 
the point of the point in this great recession where we've seen German unemployment rise to down huge numbers coming, this thirty million odd increase in, in unemployment claims is because there's no demand. Oil prices are falling yeah. because people aren't driving. Um, the restaurants are closed yeah. because people aren't going to them. So this is to temporarily take um, help the people who through no fault of their own have been made unemployed. Um, and so to argue that we shouldn't help those people, we shouldn't you know, deal with the difficult issues that are going on right now, seems, well, heartless is about as good as I could say. Well said, Danny. Very well said. David Blanchfarn, thank you so much. He is with Dartmouth College. We have talked to all sorts of good people. We thank Stephen Riley of Imperial College for joining Bloomberg Surveillance uh, today out of London. Right now, my conversation that I had with Francine Lacroix, with Jason Farley, with the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing. Let's listen. We've got great data about the way we position patients um, that will actually help improve oxygen saturations or the amount of oxygen in the blood. Um, it can actually slow down if a patient's <clears throat> progressing toward the need for ventilation by placing them on their stomach. We call that prone position or proning the patient. We can do that before a patient gets ventilated. We can do that after a patient gets ventilated. Uh, it actually helps to, by gravity, improve the amount of oxygen in a patient's blood. So that's one thing. The second thing, and I think more importantly what Dr. Fauci is referring to in this proof of concept, is do we have any drug that shows it can help improve the way um, it <clears throat> responds or it causes the virus to respond in the body? And that, I think, is more what Dr. Fauci is speaking to in his comments yesterday, the proof of concept that we now have sure. a single drug that <clears throat> may offer a benefit. What is our proof of concept right now with our testing? It seems to be complex. People talk about the swabs and the rest of it. Is our testing up to proof of concept level? Well, well certainly when we, when we talk about um, proof of concept, it simply means that we have, you know, we've theorized an issue and when we understand that there is a at least something that gives us an idea that the hypothesis we originally proposed is actually has merit right and that's the proof of concept so right now um, our proof of concept is that we can stand up across the United States without the help of the federal government you know testing and we can stand that testing up uh, you know it takes it's a slow process it's their supply chain issues but we are now testing across the United States um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a day. Um, that being said, it, it, it remains a very slow process. So we do need to scale up, and the administration's estimate of testing 2% of the general population per day, would, you know, we've heard estimates that that would take us approximately four years to get to the right level of testing that we need. So we, we definitely know that we need to speed up our testing capacity, need to speed up the number of people being tested. Dr. Farley, what is, you know, what are you most hopeful about right now? I know that there are a couple of clinical trials actually showing that remdesivir could be working. H how long until we have, you know, an almost certain answer on what drugs can help us fight this pandemic? Certainly. So I, I understand, um, you know, that the data that came out from the NIH uh, yesterday was an interim analysis. And, and basically what that means is, that the, there's a data safety and monitoring board that's independent to the investigative team. They look at the data and they've done that. And in that interim analysis, there is a statistical benefit in terms of recovery time. 
It's a four-day benefit, so uh, patients who receive the drug Redemsevir received an 11-day overall time to resolution, whereas people who received placebo was a 15-day time to resolution. Now, that's our first, guys, as we were saying before, proof of concept that the drug may have some level of benefit. When it comes to survival, um, there was a, a trend toward survivability um, that was not exactly statistical significant at this point, um, meaning that, you know, the, the metric we look at as scientists to say, is this different one drug A versus drug B? And the answer to that is right now it, was, it appears that it's moving in that direction, but it was not yet statistically different. But the data, what the data did show was that 8% mortality in the severe arm versus 11.6% mortality in the placebo arm. So that is at least some benefit that we can see mathematically uh, emerging. Jason Farley, School of Nursing, John Hopkins University, and we should mention also affiliated with the Bloomberg School of Public Health at JHU. And, of course, we should mention Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, and this radio and television operation as well, he has given generously to his School of Engineering and the rest of the Johns Hopkins uh, University. Apple's taken over our lives, and uh, they're becoming more and more integral as we are staying at home and consuming more and more media on our devices. Chris Sankar covers Apple uh, for Cowan and Company. He's a senior research analyst, Tom, and he joins us here. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Um, what do you expect from Apple after the close tonight when they report their earnings? Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. And uh, you know, as everyone is aware, you know, Apple is probably the first one to pull the guidance because of COVID back in mid-February. So I, I would say that consensus numbers are all over the map. But if you look at the midpoint of it, roughly around like, you know, uh, low to mid-50 billion in revenues, I do expect them to come in line with that number. And keep in mind that used to be 65 billion, you know, pre-guidance withdrawal. So you've mm. seen a, quite a bit of uh, de-risking over there. So I do expect them largely to come in line. At this point, I do not expect them to give a June quarter guidance. And uh, the, the rationale for that is pretty simple, right? So in uh, Jan 30th, during the last earnings call, they gave a March guidance. Two weeks later, they pulled it at the time because the supply chain was disrupted due to the COVID. And now the supply chain is up and running. But you have to forecast demand for June based on some geographies that haven't even opened up yet. So I think uh, the demand forecasting is much more challenging than the supply ramifications at this point. So I would say, given all of that, I do not expect them to give a June quarter guidance, but our forecast it is to be largely flattish on a sequential basis. All right. So Chris, so I know they had some new phones uh, scheduled to be launched, kind of a, a lower or mid-price phone, uh, as well as perhaps a 5G phone in the fall. Where do you think some of those new product launches are going to be impacted? Are we going to see some significant delays in some of their new product launches? So in terms of the, like the mid-range, or I, should, I should say the low-cost phone, they did come out of the two weeks ago, the iPhone SE, uh, you know, which the price point was anywhere from 399 at the low end to 549 in the, in the in the upper end. So I think they did come out of the iPhone SE, you know, in a normal environment, you would have seen a little <clears> bit more fanfare with yeah. the official launch. This time around, it was an online launch. Uh, so I think that does add to some upside into the unit forecast in June, but more realistically into the second right. half of the year. And then um, the 5G phone, which is scheduled for uh, later this year, 
typically Apple comes out with uh, a new iPhone in you know in the September October time frame looks like it might be shifted by maybe a month but i would say you know in the grand scheme of things whether the new iPhone 5G gets delayed by a month or two months it doesn't really matter you know it doesn't matter to the thesis it doesn't matter to the supply chain if it's like a couple of months push out i would say that if it's a 6 or 9 month push out yeah. then uh, there's probably some ramifications in the in the medium term but i would say a few months push out really doesn't change uh the landscape right. of the 5G adoption into calendar 21. I can predict to you that all my kids' iPhones will break <laughs> one week before the rollout of 5, 6, or 7. Uh, gee, I got one question here. With all of this upside-down demand supply dynamics, what do you model out for the growth of their free cash flow and for the sustainability of $207 gajillion of cash? I mean, does the balance sheet get adjusted here off of cash flow or not? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And, you know, one of the things I would say is that, you know, the stability of the balance sheet has been a, a major selling point for many Apple shareholders. And, you know, I mean, the free cash flow, if you look at it, you know, last year, it was around like 22%. You know, if this, things are going to be down quite a bit this year, we actually don't expect the free cash flow to diminish dramatically. In other words, right now, our forecast is like, you know, just under 20% free cash flow margins for fiscal 20 versus 22 23% uh, in fiscal 19. So I think that's kind of like the beauty of the model. The other thing that we have assumed in our model is that there is really no buybacks in the June quarter. You know, clearly Apple has been funding buybacks from their own cash flow, so they could do what they want with it. But given the environment and the optics of it, we just assume that they're not going to well, be doing any buybacks at least in the June quarter. I mean, it's just you, me, and Paul listening, uh, uh, talking here. Nobody <laughs> else is listening. What are they going to do with all that money? I mean, if there's a valuation contraction out there, isn't this like the best time ever for Mr. Cook to get acquisitive? You know, uh, I know it's a it's a very valid point. And usually, you know, there are a lot of bargain basement deals at this time. But I think at the same time, you know, how many of them are willing to sell? You know, historically, they've done more tuck-in M&A, not any big transformational M&A. I feel like that is still their sentiment around M&As at this point. And uh, if, if it's a big opportunity out there, you know, is there a willing seller as well? I, I doubt it in these valuation metrics. But at the, at the same time, what they have made it very clear, both Mr. Cook and um, uh, Mr. Luca, the CFO, have made it clear that they want to be um, net cash neutral i.e. they still have like net cash of like 100 plus billion dollars. And what you've seen them do is, you know, effectively do an 18 to 20 billion dollar on a quarterly basis buyback. And they're also looking at investing in, you know, TV plus for the news shows, etc. Over the last five years, some of the big capex, uh, you know, investments were on retail stores. They're largely done building that out. So what you're seeing is some of the more incremental spend going towards original content for TV plus, etc., and, you know, to your point, Tom, when you have $200 billion in, uh, you know, in the bank, the world is your oyster. But historically, as you've seen, Apple has not been a, a major transformational acquisition kind of a company, but it's been more bolt on. Yeah. So, Chris, you know, one of the stories about Apple over the last several years has been the growth of the services business. And I'm just wondering how the services business will fare in a world where 30 million Americans just lost their jobs in the last five weeks. We have a global pandemic. How are you thinking about kind of the, the services businesses for Apple? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a valid question. And uh, at the end of the day, I would say the service is, is definitely more resilient. If in a normal environment, March quarter usually sees an uptick in services, especially from China, where they do a lot of app store downloads of games uh, around the Chinese New Year. Arguably, this March quarter was not like any other March quarter in history. So there's a lot more people working from home. So I think that actually probably helps the services business overall compared to historical yeah. uh, March quarters. At the same time, I think the unemployment is the bigger concern from investors. I think that is more right. centered around the hardware or the smartphone division where it's much more consumer-centric. Yeah. But I think the services side is pretty resilient in uh, today's Pretty environment. resilient. Yeah, Paul, let me do some CFA Institute research <laughs> for you right now. Create, explore, and survive. All this for six ninety nine. Explore infinite worlds and build everything from the simplest of homes to the grandest of castles. Paul, you can do this with Minecraft. Trust me, <laughs> Tim Cook's killing it with a Minecraft app from Apple. I know. Exactly, Tung, because I'm sure that's uh, downloaded all, all across uh, the Keen household. Vet Bill won't even go for a walk anymore. He's playing Bed Wars. <laughs> exactly. So, Chris, just you know, taking a look, you mentioned the supply chain here. It, it looks like China's reopening again. Give us a state of the supply chain for Apple. The supply chain is definitely in much better shape compared to a month ago. I think, you know, if you look at one of the major suppliers, which is Foxconn, you know, at the peak of the pandemic in um, in Asia, their utilization rates, you know, went below 50%. Right now, they're back up and to like over 90%. So clearly, the supply chain has come from like, you know, a sub 50% in late February to like, you know, a more normalized run rate today. So the supply chain has seen a quick rebound. they have also seen a lot of the shelter in place or as some of the Asian economies call it, like movement control orders, they've been lifted. Or in some cases, they're actually given special permission to some of the larger employers, which would be like many semiconductor companies, Apple, et cetera, which employ tons of people in the local jurisdiction. Many of them are relaxed. So I think the supply chain is definitely in a much better situation than it was maybe like a month, month and a half ago, where you're not seeing the biggest efficiency improvement is because there are some factories or shop floors where you still have to practice social distancing. So you can't have as many people, or i.e. the people density is lower than what it would normally be. So that does have some impact on the supply. But largely, I would say the supply chain is, you know, um, in today's environment, for lack of a better word, back to normal. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts and commentary on Apple. We- Tom, we're all staying uh, indoors, we're quarantining, we're shut in, and we are consuming media more than ever. The question is, how do we kind of get it? The cable, the telecom companies, are we streaming? Just a whole host of issues for these big tech telecom media companies to deal with. And who better to chat about that than our good friend Craig Moffat, Moffat Nathanson, uh, founding partner and senior research analyst. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Let's talk cable stocks first. We had some Comcast numbers out. Is the cable story, Craig, just, yeah, don't worry about the video subscribers. That business is going away. It's all about broadband. Yeah. Hi. Good morning, Paul. And, and uh, Tom, good to, good to talk to you again. You know, yes, I, I think that's right. For the cable side of Comcast business, broadband blew the doors off. Um, it, it, I think all the things that you could have hoped for which is that in this kind of
kind of a crisis. Uh, customers wanted higher speeds. They were willing to trade up to a better broadband connection for DSL customers and what have you, switching to cable. All that happened, and, and the results on the cable side of the business were very, very good. Um, losing video subscribers doesn't hurt them that much because those customers don't make them much money anyway. And uh, and so you saw margins rise to an all-time record. And if, if Comcast were a cable-only company, the results would have been mm-hmm. terrific. Craig, very quickly here, uh, the gossip at AT&T. Mr. Stevenson, am I right? The board moved him out the door. Tell us about the M&A activity of AT&T and what Mr. Stanky can do to straighten this out fast. Well, you know, I, I, I can't comment. I don't have any insight into um, to the circumstances uh, surrounding uh, Randall's earlier-than-expected retirement. I, I would say that that John Stanky, as his successor, is to some extent an endorsement of the status quo at AT&T, though. Um, mm-hmm. you know, John was very much a co-architect of this, quote-unquote, uh, new media company vision. That is, you generate content and you distribute it over your own platforms. Um, they've got it all under one roof. It hasn't worked so far, but this is clearly an endorsement of saying we're going to stay the course and try to keep keep trying here to make it work. All right, so Craig, let's stay with AT&T here. Uh, you know, from my recollection, the DirecTV acquisition, probably one of the worst deals I've ever seen. I guess the jury's still out on Time Warner. How much time does Mr. Stanky have to proof this concept correct? Well, you're, you're right. The, the, the DirecTV acquisition, I think, will go down in history as one of the worst ever. Um, are you guys are, can you guys sugarcoat it? <laughs> $61 billion for an acquisition that today is just five years later is worth $20 billion or something, maybe. Um, and, and you're right, Time Warner is, is in some ways very similar in that long-term structural challenges to these businesses, now you're facing a lot of cyclical headwinds as well. But even leaving aside the COVID crisis, these are long-term structurally challenged businesses um, that they bought at extremely high valuations, and they're just riding them down. The, the, what makes this so so difficult, though, is... As I said before, John Stanky was sort of the co-architect of this strategy. So it's not like you're bringing in an outsider to say, now yeah. let me change this business and, um, and see what I can make of it. This is, this is an endorsement of saying he helped put it together. Completely changing directions probably would have just been too hard and, and too risky. And so um, they've changed leadership, but, but it is still very much the same strategy. I, I, I don't know what the, the ticking clock would say for how long you have to put it together. The obvious, or to, to write the ship, I think the obvious question is just, can you sustain the dividend? And um, right now it looks like probably yes, but if the recession goes on longer than people think, or if it's deeper than people think, then the leverage ratio at AT&T will rise quite substantially as EBITDA falls. And the rating agencies could very justifiably and and conceivably demand a dividend cut in order to redirect cash flows to debt retirement instead. And that's the real risk, and that's the ticking clock at AT&T. All right, Craig, just real quick, Verizon, 30 seconds. What's their strategy? 
well, Verizon right now is viewed as an impregnable defensive story, and that's not entirely wrong. Um, there's nothing bad that's going to happen to their business relative to most businesses in this crisis, um, and they're doing fine. The problem is before this crisis, they weren't growing. Um, after this crisis, they won't be growing. Mm-hmm. And so they're an okay place to hide, but it's this is by no means one of those very few stories in the market that will emerge stronger. I don't think Verizon will emerge stronger. They'll sort of emerge the same. Interesting. Craig Moffat, not enough time. We'll do it again. Craig Moffat with us, of course, with Moffat Nathanson. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.